Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hi everyone and welcome to My Millennium Money Medical. My name is Dev Raga and I'm your host and in this episode we will answer some really great and interesting questions sent to me via Facebook, Twitter and also live. Now this episode will be split into two parts. We have about 15 questions overall so I'll aim to address about seven or eight questions per episode. And look, if it just drags on, then I might even make it into a three-part Q&A session. Let's get started. If you want me to discuss a specific topic, or if you have a specific question, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or via Facebook. And for those of you that are new to the channel, remember the three main aims, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Let's get stuck into it. Question one comes from Anon, who asks, how do ATO payment plans work? This is when you actually owe money to the ATO because you have to pay tax. Now, here's a bit of a hint. Try not to owe money to the ATO and end up having a payment plan. Now, sometimes you may owe money in taxes and it may occur in a number of situations but most commonly occurs for people who are sole traders or business owners who may have unexpected income cycles and therefore haven't factored in their extra tax liabilities during the financial year. And this is not uncommon for a lot of healthcare workers who are actually self-employed. So let's use an example to highlight this concept. Amy is a GP and is self-employed. She acts as a sole trader and works for Clinic ABC. She works five days a week And when she started at the clinic, which was about a year ago, things were slow due to the pandemic, lockdowns, etc, etc. Now, most of her consults were telehealth, which had a bulk billing stipulation. In 2022, she's been fully booked out and some days even double booked. And most of her consults are now face to face and she's now privately billing. This has resulted in a higher than usual income due to the higher workload. During the financial year, she's been paying her tax liabilities using estimates on a BAS statement, but unfortunately, due to the higher income, this hasn't filtered through yet. So, when she attends her annual tax planning session to submit her total tax returns via the accountant, she finds out she actually owes more taxes. Her total tax liability at the end of the financial year comes to around $50,000 in addition. Now, this is in addition to future liabilities such as Div 293 taxes, etc., etc. She has not contributed more than her concessional contributions to a super, so is not liable for excess super contributions taxes. Now, if you're interested in all of this, please refer to my super series to learn about Div 293 and excess super contributions tax. 
I also discussed the sneaky Div 9.3 tax specifically in episode 120, which a lot of healthcare workers are affected by. So what are Amy's options in paying her tax liabilities? As usually, she would have gotten a letter from the ATO about her liability, pre-warned hopefully by her accountant. Number one, she can pay it in a lump sum manner via the ATO Payment Gateway or MyGov. Now, there are various ways to do this. She can use her credit card, she can BPay it, she can MyGov it, whatever she wants. Number two is she can establish a payment plan to help her with a cash flow situation because Amy may not have a cool $50,000 extra lying around. Now, self-employed doctors and other healthcare workers are extremely vulnerable to making mistakes in calculating their tax liabilities. So here's a pro tip which I use to use in private practice. And of course, self-employed people are across the board. doesn't have to be healthcare workers, can be your tradespersons, small business owners, etc., etc. So what did Devraga do when I was in private practice? I would purposely apply a 50% tax on my gross income after service fees. And I would keep this aside in a separate account, which is called offset, and I used to call it tax money. And it literally used to say in the account, tax money. The main reason why 50% was taken away for me is because I knew that I would never have to pay 50% tax. So it's a bit of a safety net for me. Now, supposing my tax liability is 40%, then I would have easily saved a cool 10% on top of that. Now, that was on top of my usual pay yourself money. So it's a very conservative or aggressive, whichever way you want to look at it, way of saving money, making sure that tax liabilities are taken care of and also makes the whole tax liability time of the year, which is the end of financial year, less stressful because I'd already planned it out. Now, because the money is set out in a separate account, which I wouldn't touch, and of course, during the whole 12 months, it's sitting there, it's offset against my non-deductible debt. So technically, I'm using the government's money to get some guaranteed returns on my money. So in Amy's case, how would a payment plan work? Remember, she owes $50,000. Now, because she owes $50,000, she decided to contact the ATO about organising a payment plan. Amy can work out a plan which enables her to pay back the ATO debt in a practical way, which doesn't affect her financial situation or cash flow situation negatively. Now, she can pay back fortnightly, monthly, or weekly, depending on the plan. So how does she organise this? Amy can access the online payment plan estimator, which I'll put a link in the show notes, which will then calculate a plan for her specifically, which she can afford. Now, I use the payment plan calculator to work out a plan for Amy, assuming that she owes $50,000 in taxes, and here are the questions it asks me. Number one, you put in the debt figure. So in this case, it was $50,000. Number two, you choose the frequency of payments. I chose fortnightly. Number three, then it said I needed to pay a minimum of 10% of the debt upfront within seven days of commencement of the plan. So in this case, it would have been $5,000. Now, there's also this drag feature on the website, which allows you to choose your percentage upfront. So I think minimum is 10%. Now, I chose 30%. So then the minimum amount upfront I needed to pay was $15,000 or Amy needed to pay was $15,000. And we know that 
maybe Amy does have $15,000 lying around. She doesn't have $50,000 lying around. So she's required to pay $15,000 towards her ATO debt upfront within seven days of commencement of the payment plan. Then it asks how long Amy needs to pay back the debt. Now I chose six months and then I clicked show result and it came up with the following numbers. It said to me that the total debt now becomes $50,701.08. Upfront payment of $15,000 was required within seven days of payment plan commencement and 13 fortnightly payments later of $2,554.36 with a final payment of $2,494.40. It calculated the interest. Remember, this is not free money. This is ATO's money. This is the government's money. And you need to pay interest on your debt because they now classify this as a debt and therefore it's a loan. Now, it kind of worked out the interest rates to be around 8% per annum, which works out to be around $701.08. Remember, it's a six-month term. It also says because the debt is under $100,000, Amy can organise all of this through MyGov ATO Services Online, so she doesn't really need to speak to anyone about it. The thing is, you can organise payment plans relatively easy, but it's not free, and it'll come at a cost. So where does the 8% come from? How do we know how much interest is generally charged? Now, in the fine print of the payment calculator, it says the interest rate is estimated based on general interest charge, or GIC, rate of 8%. The interest amount may vary depending on the GIC rate or the date you make payments on your payment plan. So what is this GIC? Well, it turns out the ATO regularly review this general interest charge and they do it every quarter. So for example, for the July to September quarter in 2022, the GIC rate is 8%. This is the time that I recorded this episode. For April to June 2022, it was only 7.7%. Now I suspect this rise is because of the overall IBA interest rate rise as well and the inflationary pressures and the economic conditions during the first, second, and third quarter of this financial year. Now, generally, they announce the GIC about two weeks prior to the next quarter. And at the time of recording, I don't know what the general interest charge is going to be for the October to December quarter, but I suspect because inflation has gone up a little bit, it's probably going to be closer to 9%. Now, what sort of things will they take into account when setting up a payment plan, especially if it's outside the usual guidelines and that you can't do it online because your circumstances are different? Number one, they look at your total income, employment, rent, dividends, interest, royalties, etc., etc. Number two, they look at your expenses, transport, groceries, utilities, insurance, financial debts, credit cards, TV, phone, internet, education expenses, housing expenses, assets, they look at all of it. Number three is these principles then apply to businesses as well as individuals as well. So in an ATO debt, the same systems apply across the board. And they generally say that any ATO debt under $100,000, payment plans can be easily organised via MyGov or online services. Any ATO debt greater than $100,000, you will need to pick up the phone and talk to someone about it. Now, is interest always chargeable? 
you'll need to check this with your accountant. But my understanding is nothing is free and the ATO is not going to give you free money. So generally speaking for individuals, interest is always chargeable. But if you have a business debt, there are some exemptions. The ATO website has the eligibility criteria for businesses and exemptions about this very issue. So what happens if you have a tax refund or tax credit? Now, you can use that to offset your overall tax debt. But once the repayment plan has been commenced, you can't use it to offset any regular payments which are required. Now, what happens to the interest on the debt? Now, basically, the interest charges will keep accruing until you pay off the debt. That's basically the definition of compounding that's working against you. What about using your assets? What happens if you don't have any money or enough money to pay back the debt, but you do have some assets? Does the ATO accept security for your debt? And the answer is the ATO does accept security for your debt. So technically, you can ask your bank for an unconditional guarantee letter or have the ATO have a caveat over your freehold property. Now, things are getting a bit hairy. I would not recommend you do business with the ATO. I would not recommend you allow the ATO to put a caveat on your property. To me, that's just getting way too close for comfort. So what's the moral of the story here? Number one, pay your ATO debt on time. Try and avoid entering into a payment plan unless you really have to. Don't play the debt game. And basically, ATO debt, in my opinion, is probably the worst form of debt you could have. They know how much you earn, they know how much you spend, and they practically know everything about you. So I just don't think it's worth playing any games with them. So hopefully, Anon, that answers your question about ATO payment plans. Question two is another one from Anon who says, when to micro-invest versus invest large amounts of money, assuming no limits to cash amounts, for example, fund types such as investing in VAS via Perla, uh, do we invest micro-invest or invest large amounts of money? Now, I think, Anon, the term micro-invest here is probably the wrong term because micro-investing is something slightly different. Micro-investing refers to very small amounts of money into an equity portfolio. And usually there are some companies which already offer such services, such as Spaceship Voyager and Raise. They're probably the most notable ones. Um, And I've done a episode on micro-investing apps, so go back and listen to it. But I think what Anon actually means in this case is when to dollar cost average versus lump sum invest. Now, I've discussed this concept littered throughout my podcast series, but here's a very simple way to look at things. The whole question revolves around behaviours and not mathematics. If index investing is the way to go, then lump sum investing is likely going to yield you better results over the very long term, say 30 or 40 years. So that's a pretty easy answer from a mathematical standpoint, from a statistical standpoint, but it's not guaranteed. But you need to convince yourself to do it so that if you have $100,000 or $10,000, you need to feel comfortable. The market will drop by 50% soon after you invest. And you need to convince yourself that it's not going to affect you mentally and you're going to check the markets. Now, if the answer is, I'm going to let market drops affect me, then the emotional or behavioral answer to your question is just dollar cost average. Invest, 
regularly invest smaller amounts over a very long period of time. That is, if the market is going to go up over the long period of time, then it doesn't make sense to dollar cost average because each time you invest over that period of time, you are getting less for your money as prices are rising. Now I'm back to the mathematical side of things. And if the market is going to go down over the same period of time, then it does make sense to dollar cost average because each time you invest over that period of time, you are getting more for your money as prices decrease. But there's a fundamental problem here. No one knows where the market is going to go in the short term, medium term, or even in the long term. Although technically, historically, if you look at the very long term of 30 plus years, human ingenuity and innovation factors means overall, society tends to do better as we move into the future. But the truth is, no one knows the future. So it's impossible to be 100% sure. So the answer to Anon's questions is, there is a mathematical answer, and that is lump sum investing usually beats dollar cost averaging about 70% of the time historically, and it's probably likely to do the same in the future. But the real answer is the emotional and behavioural answer, which is far more important, and that is it's much easier to ignore the noise and just take small amounts of money and invest regularly into the stock market over a very long period of time. So what does Devraga do? I dollar cost average. I'm a financial guy. Well, not accredited, but you know what I'm talking about. And even I dollar cost average. Because for me, the emotional and behavioural aspects of investing is far more important than the mathematical side of investing. I automate my investments. I don't pay attention to the markets. I sometimes put more money in if the market drops, if I've got some spare cash to average out my cost basis. But that's not something I do often. I try and take the emotion out of it. Now, I've done a detailed episode on behavioural finance, specifically in episode 67, if you're interested. So hopefully that answers your question. Question three, again from Anon, is the FIRE movement is a very popular concept with millennials as a strategy to retire early. What about FIRE as a strategy to give you freedom of choice to pursue a career in medicine that it's outside the norm and thus maybe less lucrative, for example. Now, that's an interesting question and a very good one. I've recently did an episode, a deep episode actually, with AFB, Aussie Firebug. Go back and listen to it if you're interested. We talked about money. We talked about investing. We talked about healthcare. We talked about raising kids. We talked about the fine number. Lots of interesting concepts explored in that episode. Now, most people use financial independence, or FI, to reach independence to do what they love. Now, personally, I don't believe in retiring early. I believe in work dignity. Do something you enjoy, and hopefully that'll lead to something else, which you also enjoy. The whole point of FIRE is having the option to work or not to work, or do whatever the hell you want. Our mate Glenn James has another term called loot. Live life on own terms. Using this as the main principle, then I think it's completely fine to pursue a career in medicine that is outside the norm. The whole point of life is having options. And that's why it's imperative to reach financial independence as soon as practicable. Apart from reaching FI and changing medical careers, what are some of the reasons why doctors or any healthcare worker are looking at alternative subspecialties? Burnout. I've done a detailed episode on the concept of burnout in episode 223, where I delve into the concept and also talk about self-care. 
I think it's a good episode to learn more about it because remember, burnout is not a medical diagnosis, but rather a syndrome, which is characterised by a range of symptoms. Number two is healthcare bureaucracy. The bureaucratic nonsense that doctors and healthcare workers have to deal with to get the care for the patients is really frustrating. Here's a recent classic example. I saw a patient and organised some blood tests. To my surprise, the bloods were abnormal, had an elevated CRP, which is C-reactive protein, which is an acute inflammatory marker, which you can measure in the blood. It's a non-specific marker, so it doesn't actually give you the diagnosis, but it tells you something bad is happening in your body. So I had to recall the patient and examine them again, and this time they had abdominal pain. Now, in their age group, the provisional diagnosis of someone with abdominal pain of a specific nature with an elevated CRP was, I concluded, acute appendicitis. Now, acute appendicitis is a clinical diagnosis. And I know that bloods are not required usually to make this diagnosis. But at the time of the original review, they didn't have any abdominal pain, which is unusual for a young person. The patient was male. And now they've developed abdominal pain, particularly on the right side. So you can't ignore that with an elevated CRP. So I referred them to the tertiary centre nearby and I told them I had already done the bloods. And when I spoke to the specialist team, I was told, upon arrival, the patient requires more bloods. Again, because they can't accept outside bloods. That's how ridiculous some systems are. But thankfully, after some back and forth... I was able to convince them that they don't need to do additional bloods. Got a patient, young, male, abdominal pain, right-sided with an elevated CRP, just needs a surgical consult to confirm or refute a clinical diagnosis of acute appendicitis. Appendicitis is appendicitis, irrespective of the CRP. Now, I suspect in this case, probably the registrar in surgery or Just assume that bloods must be on their system. A protocol answer. That's just one example of bureaucratic nonsense that healthcare workers have to deal with, and it's an endless stream of arguments and paperwork. Now, here are some alternatives if you have reached FI and considering a career change, particularly in the field of medicine or healthcare. Number one, think about NGO work. It's rewarding, interesting, can work overseas, And sometimes you see some really interesting and serious pathology. Now, if you don't want to wear PPE all day, number two, then consider telehealth, virtual services. There's an update of such services in Australia and around the world. It gives life flexibility. You could be at home. You could be on holiday, log in for a few hours, make some extra dough and continue your nomadic life if you choose. Number three is medical education. Very rewarding. I used to be a Monash University lecturer and Deakin University lecturer for School of Medicine. I found it really interesting, rewarding, and it was amazing I could have an impact on some of the students early in their learning. Some of them have now become doctors, registrars, even consultants, and some of them are listening right now, so thank you. Number four is corporate medical jobs. Employment medicals pays reasonably well, working to provide opinions for medical panels for insurance companies, Transport Accident Commission, Work Cover, Fair Work, etc., etc. 
Number five is hospitals and pharmaceuticals. They always need healthcare consultants, whether it be doctors, nurses, allied health professionals. The medicinal cannabis industry is booming in Australia, and more and more evidence is coming out that medicinal cannabis can be useful for treating seizures, epilepsy, but of course you need to do your own research. I'm not an expert in THC use in medicine, but you could be a consultant providing advice to corporations, health insurance companies, medical companies, where expertise is generally required and needed. Medical journalism. Now, a prominent medical commentator listens to this channel and they find their work really interesting. They're clinicians too. They're working in real life medicine, but also provide commentary either on print, online, radio or TV. And to get such spots usually though, you need to have medical connections or media connections or even to get noticed. This particular person is on TV all the time. What about podcasting? Now, I know a guy who does podcasting because he likes talking about money and trying to get healthcare workers involved in their personal finances. YouTube and online medicine. YouTube is a great opportunity to diversify your income opportunities from ad revenue, but it takes a lot of work. Editing, being consistent is really important. Finance and health videos do score more ad revenue than generics. There's YouTube shorts, there's TikTok, there's all sorts of revenues to pursue. But the problem I don't like about YouTube is you lose your privacy, which is really important for me. And lastly, similar to NGOs, there's also charity work. Now, Medicine Sans Frontiers is a great example of this. I know at least one doctor who went to medical school with me who works with them and works in the most demanding, challenging circumstances. There's also a human rights activist's environmentalists, and a doctor. That's amazing. Now, I have to be humble. I could never do what this doctor does. Not because I don't believe in any of those things, I'm just not strong enough. But something to consider if you're inclined in that way. And shout out to Dr. L if you're listening, class of 2006. Now, there are so many more opportunities for doctors and healthcare workers And it's completely fine to reach FI, then pursue something that is less lucrative or outside of the norm. And all of these options I've just highlighted just before is less lucrative than doing something in healthcare as a norm profession. Now, the norm is also fine. It's completely fine to be normal. But sometimes it sucks too. It's a great question, by the way. Question four from, hang on again, who says, I'm a single parent, practice owner, divorced, and 50. What's the best financial decision I can make to play catch up? Now, caveat here is there isn't much information in this brief to provide much advice at all, nor am I qualified to give such advice. But from the sounds of things, it looks like this practice owner, not sure if medical, allied health, or even pharmacist, is 50 years old, they're a sole income earner, and a sole parent, and are behind from their investments. I've done a money series episode when it comes to age groups, specifically, but let me reiterate some of the basic concepts from that episode, again, without knowing the full story of this particular person who's asked the question. So it's not just one thing, it's several to focus on. Number one is, this person needs to manage their debt. If you have personal debt at the age of 50 with a dependence, try and get rid of it. Without debt, it's actually very hard to go bankrupt. It's technically possible, but it's hard. Number two is have a net worth statement. This person needs to know where they are and find out where they want to go. 
which means they need to have some idea of how much they need by retirement and when they want to retire by. Retirement means not completely retire, but perhaps living your life the best way that you want to live. Number three is they need to take stock of what they own right now and preserve it. And this means getting a will and estate plan handy and ready and good to go, including an advanced care directive so that their children are protected from the unthinkable. A lot of people are so worried about making more and more money in their 50s and 60s, but they actually forget to guard their wealth. Remember Buffett's rules. Rule one is don't lose money. And rule two is don't forget rule one. Number four is superannuation. Pump it. I love superannuation. It's amazing. It's awesome. Not maximising your super is basically lost money. And you're basically giving the government more money and free money. And you don't need to. And it's completely legal to maximise super and pay less taxes. And lastly, number five is think about your child's education needs. That is if this person has children, which I think they do because... It looks like they may have dependents because they actually said they were a single parent. So what would Devraga do out of all of this? The single most important thing without knowing anything about this person, apart from them being a practice owner, single parent at age 50, what would I do? I'd have to get rid of debt. It would worry me a lot as a 50-year-old had loads of non-deductible personal debt in that age group. So please get rid of any debt, which is non-deductible and personal particularly above the age of 50. Now, something interesting that I've noticed about questions I get from healthcare workers, and most of them are anonymous. I'm not sure why that is, but I think most healthcare workers are very private people and they don't want to publicise their work too much. I suspect there's still a huge stigma associated with healthcare and actually making money from it. Now, let's have a quick break and when I come back, we'll continue to answer more of your questions. Be right back. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back. Question five, again from Anonymous. 
Career options outside of direct clinical work for improved work-life balance. This is very similar to the one of the previous questions I've just answered about achieving fire and then choosing a less lucrative or outside of the normal medical career or allied health career or nursing career. Now, remember, lifestyle is a really important factor in decision-making. So for healthcare workers, there is a myriad of career options, and I've just discussed all of those in this episode just before, and I hope Anon finds them useful. The career options don't change very much depending on medicine, nursing, or allied health, by the way. You can find your niche and exploit it to the max. Moving right along, question six, Miriam asks, transitioning from student on Centrelink to salary for the first time. Now, this is a pretty broad question, but I think a number of aspects to this question might need to be addressed. Number one is the financial implications of having a salary versus Centrelink benefits, income or payments. Number two is knowing your skills. It's a competitive world out there. So think about retraining and upskilling. And number three is notifying Centrelink of any changes so your status is not impaired. Let's address them one by one. Number one, the financial implications. Now, you must have a system of managing your money. When you go from Centrelink money to your own money, it's not the taxpayer's money, it is your own money. It's not the government's money, it is your own money. You need to have a system of managing it. And psychologically, this can have an impact on how you view yourself and how it all works. Part of the system has to be budgeting, paying yourself and investing. And it's the systems which will eventually get you out of trouble, not your salary. Routinely, I speak with people who earn a very good income, but struggle to manage their money. And the main reason is because they're not used to having systems of managing their money. And then they're having to learn it all later in life. So when you get out from Centrelink to actually having a salary, which a lot of the students will do, nursing, medical, allied health students, they'll be reliant on Centrelink during the schooling years. And then they're going to have hopefully a decent salary when they graduate. They've got to get those systems downright, downpacked very early on. Number two is they've got to know your skills. One of the problems you may face is that your skills are outdated by the time you get to salary. Being out of the healthcare industry for any period of time can be a problem as healthcare practices may have changed. So you might have had a job in healthcare, then unfortunately something happened, you then you rely on Centrelink, then you to go back into the workforce. Well, you need to know what your skills are and see if they're appropriate. If you've never worked before, example, you're a student and now entering the workforce, upskilling, knowing your skills and knowing your scope of practice is really important. Have a look at the My Future website, myfuture.edu.au, which has some great tools which may help you select a career or expand your career. Now, lastly, you need to notify Centrelink of any salary or employment so they can actually stop the benefits. This is really, really important. You can't keep money that doesn't belong to you. And eventually, you will be caught out and end up with a debt to pay off, plus or minus any interest charges. Sometimes even criminal charges are laid. And I don't think it's worth the effort or the risk. I did not know is not an excuse, and the onus is on you to let Centrelink know that it's not always or electronically communicated to them. And the general rule of thumb for Centrelink to be aware of is the 14-day grace period. Now, here's a tip. Inform the ACO, Centrelink, or any government agency of your situational change if you rely on government benefits. It's just not worth taking the risk, no matter how attractive it may sound at the time, no matter what advice you get from your colleagues or your peers. Just don't do it. 
The last thing you want as a healthcare worker is a criminal charge or something negative legally, because that's just end game when it comes to the ability to work as a healthcare worker. You will lose all credibility and forever painted a tax cheat or a welfare fraud. I get a lot of questions about tax and how healthcare workers, they're paying too much tax and how they can minimise and reduce it. My answer is always the same. If you're paying tax, it means you have an income. And legally, minimising your taxes, you know, don't get too creative. Don't sort of make it so complex. And think about whether your strategy of minimising taxations is going to actually pass the pub test. Question seven is again from Anon, who says, I would love for you to explain private health insurance and Medicare levy. Now, that's a huge topic and it's a great question and perhaps worthy of its own episode. So, Anon, I will work on an episode about healthcare in general and private health insurance for you. Um, because private health insurance is such a minefield and I think deserves its own episode. Meanwhile, if you are keen, though, I have done an episode in the past, in episode 59, where I do discuss some of the basics of private health insurance, but perhaps I'll do a much deeper dive in the near future. But here's a short answer. If you can afford private health insurance, get it. Because the number one question I ask every patient is, do you have private health insurance and is it good hospital cover when it comes to semi-urgent and elective procedures, because it makes a big difference to access to care. Question eight from Jesse, who asks, what do you think is a difference with financial knowledge and responsibility with those who grew up poor versus those who grew up wealthy or privileged? That's a phenomenal question. And before I answer it, in my opinion only, I want to define what it means to grow up poor versus growing up wealthy versus financially privileged, because I think the definitions are really important. Because I want to make sure that I answer this question in the Australian context, not the global context. If you live in Australia, you're already on a head start journey towards financial literacy and being privileged in terms of money, lifestyle, healthcare and education. So given this is a financial podcast, mainly based in Australia and for Australians, I want to answer this specific question for the Australian context. Now, just because you live in Australia doesn't mean there are things when it comes to financial knowledge that we can't help with. So first, let's answer the fundamental question, is financial literacy important and why is it important? And the answer is, it's definitely important. That's the whole premise of this podcast, to improve financial literacy to a niche audience, and that's the healthcare worker segment. But I have a lot of people who are not in healthcare that listen to me on a regular basis because financial literacy impacts everyone. So why is it so important? Because being more financially literate means having a material impact on your life, hands down. If you know how to manage your income, your debt, your retirement accounts, your investing, then you're more likely to gain wealth over the long term. And financial products in 2022 are far more complex than in 1990. Due to this complexity, information obtained properly is vitally important so you don't get duped into signing things and dubious financial products and traps. Now, financial literacy or illiteracy is something which affects everyone, whether it be developed economies or developing economies, but the scale at which it affects them may be different. Now, I found a speech by Keith Hall, who was a deputy governor of the banking payment sector. It was made in 2008 during the GFC. Interesting read if you're interested. And he sums it up like this, and I quote, 
Financial literacy matters at many levels. From a social welfare perspective, it obviously matters greatly whether or not people are able to manage their financial affairs wisely and live within their means. But the benefits of financial literacy extend well beyond stronger household balance budgets to the promotion of more resilient financial systems and ultimately to the more efficient allocation of resources within the real economy. So what are the stats on financial literacy in Australia? They call it the HILDA data, Household, Income and Labour Dynamics in Australia Survey. It's an annual survey done by eligible participants above the age of 15. And it's a longitudinal survey. And this means it follows the lives of around 17,000 Australians every year. And it's been running since 2001. It collects information about income, health, education, household expenses, labour markets, and much, much more. And it's conducted by the Department of Social Services. Out of 140 countries, Australia actually ranks in the top 10 of financial literacy, which is amazing. Women are less financially literate than men, 63% versus 48% when it comes to adults. And when it comes to three basic financial literacy concepts, one of the concepts they need to understand and test can ask for is actually compound interest. Now, I talk to a lot of healthcare workers who say they understand compound interest, but they can't fathom the power of it, the asymmetrical greatness of it. And healthcare workers aren't generally educated and highly educated people. Even we struggle. So what are the core concepts studies in the HILDA survey? Number one, compound interest. Number two, inflation. Number three, diversification. And they also have a couple of extra more concepts, risk and money illusion. One of the questions I came across in one of their surveys is exactly this. And I quote, suppose that by year 2020, your income has doubled but the prices of all of the things you buy have also doubled. In 2020, will you be able to buy more than today, exactly the same as today, or less than today with your income? Have a think about it. And perhaps you can answer that question and get back to me if you wish. So does the stats vary for teenagers and younger people? Those stats I talked about was for older people. And the stats are kind of similar in the sense that teenage males have a financial literacy rate of about 28%, whilst teenage females have a financial literacy rate of about 15%. So there is that differential. That's staggeringly low. And we're meant to be in the top 10 countries of the world when it comes to financial literacy. I guess when the standard is so low, performing well is quite easy. Now to answer the question from Jesse about financial knowledge differences between people who grew up poor and those who grew up wealthy or privileged. Now, I couldn't actually find any literature papers on this in my research, but there are some anecdotal thoughts from me. I think the main difference in financial knowledge between people who grew up poor and people who grew up wealthy, assuming wealthy is, let's say, $2 million net worth and above, the people who grew up poor are constantly worried about money, which concerns them on a day-to-day basis. So their interest in attaining financial knowledge may revolve around earned income, budgets, bill managements, debt reduction, savings, the basics. The people who grew up wealthier or more privileged are not constantly worried about money which concerns them on a day-to-day basis, but perhaps will be more focused on money matters which affects their lifestyle. So they may have knowledge about investing, structuring, and protecting their wealth. Here's the deal. This doesn't mean people who grew up poor don't have investments knowledge, nor does it mean people who grew up wealthy are fully averse in personal finances. Ironically, if you don't have to think about budgeting, saving, or income, 
then you're far more at risk of doing stupid things with your money when it comes to saving, investing and debt reduction. And you don't have to think about investing or structuring or retirement funds, then if you don't have to do that, then you're more likely at risk of doing stupid things with your money when it comes to future-proofing your wealth because you don't have the know-how, which, you know, why would you worry about it in the future? So it's going to be a bit of positive and negative sides to each side of the story. And things tend to go in cycles. I don't buy this story that just because you're rich, it means you're automatically an expert in finances. I speak to plenty of doctors who are nowhere near as wealthy as they should be because they have very poor money habits. And also, they don't think about it as much because it doesn't affect their day-to-day habits. They let it go. Now, Jesse, I hope that answers your question in a bit of a roundabout way. But the basic fundamental thing to grasp here is financial literacy, no matter who you are, where you're from, is vitally important, which is a mission statement of this podcast channel. And that's why I focus on concepts and principles to improve that financial literacy rather than specific niche topics like comparing Vanguard, you know, VAS versus VDHG. Because in 50 years' time, VAS may not exist or VDHD may not exist, who knows? But in 50 years' time, you come back and listen to my episodes, pay yourself, investing, saving, reinvesting dividends, doing it forever and automating the process. All of those concepts will still be true. Now, that's about it for this episode. So thanks very much for listening. Lots of interesting questions. Um, we might do a part two Q&A because already we're down to about 48 minutes. So let's do a part two Q&A, which I'll do in the next episode. Remember to leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you may be using. Or leave a five-star review on all of the platforms. That's even better. Please leave a positive review. So I really look forward to reading those reviews in the future. The more ratings and reviews you leave, the more people get access to this podcast. And of course, these podcasts are free and I put a lot of effort into them. So really appreciate that. My name is Dev Raga and this is My Millennium Money Medical. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.